Please turn with me in Holy Scripture once again to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That's Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. The last little uh, section of chapter 4. Having moved on from the parables, we now move to this famous story of Jesus calming the storm. Once again, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Open your hearts now with faith to receive the holy and the inspired word of the Lord. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Blessed Lord, who has caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Has someone ever taught you a lesson without you realizing that that's what they were actually doing? You've been around somebody who is so wise and so good at picking up on a teachable moment or explaining an object lesson in life that you've been taught, you've received teaching from somebody and you didn't even know it. Jesus demonstrates just such a skill in the passage that is before us today. This is the famous story of the calming of the storm And here in our passage, in verse 38, Mark records the disciples calling out to Jesus as teacher. In the midst of the storm, the the way that the disciples call out to their master and Lord is to call him teacher. This is actually how the chapter began. With Jesus in a boat near the shore, teaching. And here he is again, though he has finished with the parables, at least in this chapter. He's still in the boat. Uh, he's not on the shoreline now. He's in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee. But he continues to teach. Just not in the way that they've grown accustomed to. And uh, he teaches in this passage. He teaches all his disciples, including us, who would come after him, follow him, and believe his gospel... That even in the most difficult and dire circumstances, he is worthy to be believed and feared. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to be believed and feared. And he is worthy of this because 
He himself has endured the most dire of circumstances in our place. If he has done this for us, then we can trust him. We can trust him when we come to those dark valleys of life. We can place our faith in him and come not with a flippant kind of faith that comes and goes, but with a reverent and fearful faith. Let's see how Jesus teaches this to his disciples and to us by walking through the passage together. We're going to look at these two things, belief, having belief in in the Lord Jesus Christ and fearing him. But first, we're going to walk through the passage, make sure we understand the basic scope of it and some of the details that we ought to look at. We've spent several weeks now in the parables of chapter four, and now we're, we're turning to a new section in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to be performing miracles of a very high caliber. He's already performed many amazing things. But now there's more attention to detail that's given in the record of these miracles. And he is upping the ante. He will go on in chapter 4, in the rest of chapter 4 here, and then into chapter 5. He will heal a demoniac, somebody who is possessed by a demon and who is tearing at his own flesh and and howling like a wolf. He will uh, go on to raise the dead. But uh, here, right now, he's calming a storm. And uh, it says in verse 35 that it is now evening. Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. So they are still in the uh, province of uh, uh, where Capernaum is. They've been around the Sea of Galilee and then the province of Galilee. And they've been on the western side of the shore, the western side of that lake. And now they're going to go onto the eastern side, which is technically Gentile territory. Um, it'll become clearer in, in weeks to come, next week in particular, why they're going over there. For now, it's important to see that it is evening And it is therefore prime time for fishing. Since we've learned that he called many into his group of disciples who had this as their trade. The Sea of Galilee was well known to have uh, sometimes sudden and very dramatic, dangerous wind gusts come up from the south. And because of the, uh, the surrounding hills, the way that wind would come in would be violent and kick up the waves. And this mostly happened in the mornings and in the afternoons. And so fishermen got wise about this, and they spent most of their time fishing in the Sea of Galilee at night. That was their best chance. So the overnight hours, which they've just entered into, have arrived, and this is the prime time for fishing. Now, whether or not this is Jesus' main goal is kind of beside the point. But it at least would have given the disciples a sense of control over the matter. They understand this sea at nighttime. And even though they have been spending what seems to be a very long and arduous day listening to the teaching of Jesus, dealing with the crowds as they do, they're now in a boat and they're in what is common territory for many of them. Though it was dark on this sea at night, it was usually very calm. Look with me at verse 36. It says, In leading the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, 
and other boats were with him. A few interesting details to clarify here. First, it says the disciples took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. This is a detail that Mark includes that, the, that Matthew and Luke do not include in their record of this event. Probably the best way to read this is that Jesus was already in the boat, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 4 when he was teaching. And that's as he was. So the disciples are uh, setting sail. They're leaving the shoreline, the docking area, with Jesus in the boat just as he was. He was already in the boat. I think that's probably the best way to read that, that clause there. Um, another detail. Although they've left the crowd on the shore, we do read that there are other boats with him. Another detail that Matthew and Luke do not include, but that Mark says nothing else about in the rest of the story. Other boats were with them as Jesus and the disciples were going out onto the lake. We're probably simply meant to keep these other boaters in mind. And to, to recognize that what Jesus is about to do is a grand public display of authority. He's already made some distinctions between those who are inside and outside, those who have drawn near to him, those who have not done so, those who are listening, those who are not. And it seems here that, the, that he is straddling that line. Jesus is allowing not just his, his inner circle to come and see this amazing display, but there's others in boats with him as well. And what a display it is. Jesus transforms, verse 37, he transforms a great windstorm into, verse 39, great calm. There's the storm itself. Uh, there's no storm, depending on the kinds of depictions you may have seen in, in your past life when you used to look at pictures of Jesus, but don't do that anymore. You may have seen rain coming down. Uh, there's no rain here. The power of this wind is enough to cause a dangerous and potentially deadly situation. Strong winds that uh, are coming up from the south have come with that gale force, and uh, it's come at the worst possible time. Because they thought they were in control. They thought they knew the territory, and, and now they don't. Uh, it has become chaotic, like the waters of Genesis 1 before the Spirit brought order to the mass. Hopefully you've never been stranded on a boat in the middle of a body of water at night. Um, but perhaps you've sat on a dock at nighttime. Maybe if you've been on vacation or you've been to a friend's house, you live on a lake or something like that. And at nighttime, if you're sitting by a body of water, even if there's some lights around, it is quite dark when you're next to a body of water. Because the water is reflecting the darkness of the sky and it's just darkness all around. And now add to that experience winds that are so strong that the lake water is billowing into the boat of the disciples. It's beginning to sink. And these disciples are fearing for their very lives. They interrupted, we have to remember, they have interrupted their jobs, their livelihoods, they've interrupted their family life to come and follow this man. And now it feels like it's all going to end suddenly. And with the ending of this man, so ends the movement as well. So perhaps we sympathize with their panic. Because in the midst of all of this, Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is asleep while this 
horrible storm takes place. Now, boats, boats like this one, the fishing boats that, were, that uh, were common for the Sea of Galilee, had a section in the stern that was raised higher than the rest of the boat. And many archaeologists think that this was probably where observers sat or family members who weren't actually doing the fishing, keep them from getting wet. And there was usually a cushion set underneath this seating area. Now, however high up Jesus was, it is still extraordinary that he is asleep. It's a little odd that Jesus is asleep while all of this is going on. So again, we may sympathize with not just the panic, but perhaps some frustration in the voices of the disciples when they wake up Jesus in verse 38 and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The, the disciples sometimes express this kind of frustration. You remember in previous chapters, Jesus went off with by himself and the disciples find him and say, everyone is looking for you. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? And here they are now thinking that Jesus is going to take the lead in a very explicit way. And now he's sleeping and they come with this frustration and a sense of panic. And they confront him with this question about whether or not he has any concern for their life at all. Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the storm, then he rebukes the disciples for lacking faith. And the story ends with the central question of the Gospel of Mark. And in many ways, it is the central question that confronts all human beings. Who then is this? The demons have already identified him in earlier stories in this Gospel, they know. The scribes and the Pharisees have asked the question, who does this man think he is that he forgives sins? Jesus himself will even ask the question later in chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? Brothers and sisters, he is at least the great teacher. He is our great teacher. He is our prophet who reveals the word and the will of God to God's people. Whether through parables or through gale force winds, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches those who will open their ears and listen. Now then, what does this particular episode in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus actually teach us? Jesus' response to the disciples after he calms the storm is there in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The two topics that he confronts them with are fear and faith. And so this uh, first lesson, this is our second point this morning. He teaches that he is to be believed. That's what we're talking about when we talk about faith. It is a, you're saying the same thing when you say, I believe or I have faith in. No different. When Jesus asks them if they have faith, he means, do you have no faith in me. In him specifically. Because our belief must be placed firmly and squarely in Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his followers, Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
Not also as though I'm now introducing to you a second God, and I am he. Rather, believe in God, and now you must understand who this God is. Believe also in me. Have faith in me. What is this faith? What does faith mean and look like biblically? Faith. And kids, I want you to listen closely to this as well, because this is for you. doesn't matter how young you are. This is for all those who would claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the act of a person's heart to rest on something. Just like you lay down in a bed to rest, your heart has to rest on something or someone. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, with the heart one believes. That is the faculty of you that exercises faith. It is your heart which leans, it rests, it receives. We said in other, other sermons in our time together as a congregation, Psalm 23 gives us this image. The shepherd, the good shepherd, it leads us to green pastures and tells us to lay down there. And that is what our hearts must do, but with Christ. We must rest in Him. It is an inward act of the heart. It is wholehearted trust in Jesus, as our catechism says. But this faith leads to outward actions that are consistent with it. With the heart one believes. And what comes forth from that heart are outward actions, behaviors, postures. You do things that are, in cons- that are consistent then with that inward faith. Remember what was said about the paralytic and his four friends who came to Jesus. Having trusted in Jesus that he could save their friend. That he could heal him. It says in Mark chapter 2 verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. With the heart they believed. And then they did something about it that was consistent with that inward faith. Jesus in this passage looks at his disciples in the great windstorm. After he's calmed this windstorm on the lake. And he knows that they have not believed as they should. These are the same men who have received the secrets of the kingdom. They have heard his own private interpretation of the parables. But their faith is not yet Mature. Now think about this for a minute. They could have died. They were in a deadly, serious situation on this lake. They could have lost their lives. In many ways, their response is, uh, I think we can say, in many ways, it's reasonable. They saw a threat, and so they woke up Jesus. They, They tried to do something about this situation they found themselves in. But their faith cannot really be characterized as a kind of confident resting in Jesus. But rather a panicked, desperate act. Seeing him somewhat as uh, the last resource. uh, The last resort, that is. Our Lord's gentle rebuke of them was a way of teaching them. That if they are to come to him, it must be in faith. His rebuke of them was that they had not seen the truth of his trustworthiness. They had not grappled yet and truly come to terms yet with 
how radically trustworthy Jesus Christ is to his followers. He was and is not to be treated merely as a man with good ideas and some interesting powers. He is Lord of all. He's king of creation. And in him alone he teaches his followers. In him alone they must put their faith. And so it is with us. Why? Jesus teaches in, in this passage that we must believe in him, rest in him, because he saves those who are perishing. He saves those who are perishing. When the disciples say they're perishing in verse 38, it is the same word that we find back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, verse 6. When we read about the Pharisees and the Herodians conspiring to destroy Jesus. The disciples are effectively saying as the boat is going down, do you not care that we're about to be destroyed? And on the waters of Galilee here, Jesus, we see, saves his followers from death by rebuking the wind and the waves. That's how he saves them here in this particular instance. This is just a preview. As grand and magnificent as this is, this is just a preview of coming attractions. He has saved them temporally. He has saved their bodies from temporal death here in this particular episode by a powerful word. But Jesus will save those who truly follow him, not just from temporal death, not by stopping a threat, but by succumbing to the threat itself. And he will do this in his death. There's something far worse than gale force winds that threatens the human race. There's something far worse than the chaos of the sea that threatens the human race. And Jesus has seen this threat clearly. It is the threat of our sins and the threat of the coming wrath of God. And he has bowed himself into that wrath for you. Not by merely saying something and putting that threat away, stopping it, getting rid of it, but by succumbing to that threat himself. His cross is a testimony that he is the Lord of life, that he alone saves us from death and alone can grant to us eternal life of which this temporary life, this temporary salvation here on the Lake of Galilee is just a picture and a preview. Loved ones in Christ, this is the truth regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in. This is the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. How, however dire and impossible the circumstances of life seem, and however long those, those circumstances seem to go on, Jesus remains deliverer. He is a teacher whose teaching and power truly deliver those who listen, who believe. He saves us from our most dire threat. And if you will listen to his voice... He'll help you to trust him even during the storm. He is to be believed. Lastly this morning, Jesus teaches not only that he is to be believed, but that he is to be feared. He is to be feared. One reason we know that the faith of the disciples is off kilter in the story is because of their misplaced fear. They feared the storm... Rather than their Lord. They treated their circumstance as weightier 
than Jesus himself. And this is the common stumbling block for all believers, is to somehow be convinced, usually quite quickly, that the situation we find ourselves in is weightier than the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that it will certainly sink us because it is weightier than Jesus himself. That is not true. Fearing the Lord is something that we've spoken about in previous times, especially in our series in Proverbs, since the fear of the Lord is all over that book. Biblical fear of the Lord is an attitude toward the Lord that the Bible envisions as a kind of trembling. That's the action that is united with the act of fearing the Lord. And when it is directed to the Lord, when fear is directed to the Lord, it is in total harmony with faith, with hope, with love, with all the other virtues of the Christian life. It is not as though you have these kind of nice and, uh, and, and rose-colored virtues on this end of the spectrum, and then fear is this kind of step-cousin on the other end of the spectrum. No, it is not that at all. It is in harmony with all of the attributes of the Christian. It is to be our attitude, our posture toward the Lord is to have fear toward him. And it is in harmony with all that the Lord calls us to be towards him. For instance, in Hosea chapter 3, we read that God's people are to come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. The way in which we approach the Lord, conscious of his total goodness to us, is to come with fear. That would be contradictory if we were talking about some other kind of fear. But we're talking about godly, biblical, holy, sanctified fear. The theologian Michael Reeves reminds us that fear of the Lord is not the opposite of love. But rather it is the kind of love that we have for God. It is a love that trembles before the Lord of hosts. Because we know that the one who is tender-hearted towards sinners like us also created the galaxies. Will we approach that person with a flippant kind of faith? No, we must come with trembling faith and a trembling love toward this Savior. Jesus calms the storm with nothing but the power of his word. The disciples perhaps began to love him like they should have. He put them in a situation that brought forth these Christian virtues. Verse 41, they were filled with great fear. You'll notice there that there was a great storm. Jesus transforms it into into great calm. And the result of it is now this great fear in the disciples. The passage teaches us why we must fear him, just as we saw why we must have faith in him. Brothers and sisters, these are the reasons why we must also fear him. And these are not easy lessons to receive, but they are true nonetheless. The first reason is that he leads us into hardships. We must fear the Lord Jesus because he leads us into hardships. Our catechism teaches us That God the Father, when we experience this through the Lord Jesus himself, he brings upon us adversities. So that we must learn to be thankful in the midst of them. Jesus leads us as the great captain of our souls 
into life's hardships. Does that mean that the devil's never involved or our sin is never involved? No, we're just not talking about that right now. We're talking about the primary reason why we have hardships in life is because our sovereign king leads us into them. And it is on that basis that we must fear him. We must show him the proper reverence that is due him. Remember that it was Jesus himself who told the disciples that they were going to cross the lake that night. It was his design, his initiative. Nothing compelling the disciples to go do it that night. They could have taken a, probably a well-earned night, nighttime nap with Jesus on land. It is Jesus who leads them into this storm. And from heaven, your risen king still leads you into adversity to challenge you, to fortify your faith, and to teach you to fear him alone. How else will we learn to fear him? How else? But to come with that kind. Remember from the Proverbs, that knowledge which has experience attached to it. He does not program us like in the Matrix. He gives us knowledge and true training and real challenge by bringing us with him into the adversities of this life. Dark as the night may be, strong as the storm may be, The Lord Jesus is with you. And if you will listen, he will teach you in the storm. Another reason why we must fear him is because he sometimes delays his intervention. Oh, our hearts do not like this. See from this passage that Jesus decided to take a nap during the storm. And if we come with cynical eyes, it looks an awful lot like cold indifference from Jesus. But that is not the case. In your hardships, Jesus sometimes delays his intervention, delays relief that you might learn to fear him. To have faith and to have love, but to come with a trembling faith and love. Listen to Psalm 107. See if this sounds familiar. The psalmist says, Some went down to the sea in ships. The Lord raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they, meaning the sailors, were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and he brought them to their desired haven. Dearly loved brothers and sisters, the Lord delays, not because he has abandoned you, but in order that, with every fiber of your being, you would learn to cry out to the Lord with a trembling faith. Third and lastly this morning, we must fear him because he is the Lord of all. It almost goes without saying that if Jesus controls the wind and the sea, then he must be God in the flesh. If he speaks and the wind and the sea obey, then it is the same one who spoke in Genesis 1. He said, let there be light and there was light. And Jesus here says, peace be still. And it is so. It is the same one. It is God incarnate. He alone has the power to create and to destroy. And he alone on that same basis has the power to deliver us from every circumstance in life. To deliver us from sin, from death, and from the deepest valleys and the darkest storms. Brothers and sisters, who then is this? That the wind and the sea obey him. He is your teacher. 
He teaches in many ways. And sometimes he teaches in ways that we would prefer him not to. But he will teach those who will open their ears and listen. And he continues to teach his disciples even in the midst of storms. For believers, here is the promise that you have from your Savior. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is, as it were, in the boat with you. And though it seems as though he is asleep, he is delaying so that you would learn to wake him up through your prayers, as it were. To come to him with fear and trembling and with faith, knowing if he is, quote unquote, asleep, if he's delaying, then it is for my good. It is to make my faith imperishable that I might receive the crown of glory, that I might have that imperishable inheritance when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead and to consummate his kingdom. He is with you. His delay is not an act of abandonment. It is a wise way of guiding you into deeper faith and more reverent fear. To all who trust in him, you have this anchor for the soul. He is yours. He belongs to you. So come to him with trembling and with trust. With both. Come to him with fear and with faith. Cry out to him in the darkness of life. Wait patiently. And you have his promise that he will answer you. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do plead with you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would write this word upon our hearts. Help us to believe it fully and to obey it as well. Through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.